him. It looks him like a lion. That's literally what the pedophiles say. They say, say you're 13, kid. Okay, it's fine. E, e, you're no, 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 don't, don't. Say you're 14. Good lord. Me... What did I walk into? <laughs> what, have I, what have you stumbled into? Very. Alright, hey, boys. E, 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 e. Before there we start, nothing... can you look for... That's the stream for tonight. Uh, thanks for coming on. I am out of here. Eee, yeah. how do you feel about free speech hey. on your Discord server? Oh, lordy. Eee, can you do me okay. a favor and look on Gowns for a second? Has Red Chicken filled you in on uh, the events that have transpired over the past 24 hours? Oh my god, Vaughn. Seriously, you're still on this. I'm, I'm a freedom connoisseur, and I believe that there should be freedom of memes to post it on the channel, which we deem. I, I also believe this to be true. I actually think it's quite disheartening. I, I expect memes, more memes should server. be free. Should be freely posted in any channel, regardless of of naming conventions. Okay, Indeed. if a meme is topical to the conversation, then it should be allowed in that channel. You know what? You know what? Look, I would agree with you, but there aren't any goddamn memes in the meme channel, so at least put some there before you start complaining about no. We memes. do every day. Okay, every sure. Day Wait, there's a meme hey, channel. Yeah. Yeah, uh, well, it was. Where is it? Oh, well, now that wow. now that we've got that endorsement on the live stream, I'm gonna take that to Red Chicken. Thanks, no. thanks a lot. Of course. Hey, hey um, what do you think of Dawoo? D A E W O O. It was the uh, South Korea's fourth biggest cobalt, and it just failed in 1999. Spicy didn't address it in the video. Yeah, well, look, I was trying to like uh, transform it more into like modern Korea because I get into trouble when I talk too much about history and you know nothing but history, and people say, "Oh, this is history explained." Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, obviously it's one of those sort of things where, uh, you know, the Asian economic crisis brought with it sort of a lot of, um, major, major impacts, and of course, you know, it sort of toppled some of these institutions that were probably too large to fail even back then, uh, but it sort of puts them in the same kind of predicament today, you know, um, I, I wouldn't be surprised if we sort of start to see that kind of uneasiness, because, um, while Korea's economy is very, very strong, uh, it's also very brittle. Uh, because it's like, you know, uh, sure, it's got these big, powerful institutions, but if just one of them fails, snap. It's not like uh, something that's got lots and lots of smaller, you know, sort of more maneuverable institutions that can kind of fill in to take the place of something else that falls apart. So, uh, it'll so, be for the so for the case of Dawu, uh, for your statement, uh, these COBOLs are too big to fail, would you take that back and say, like, just like the top, maybe one percent, the top three COBOLs are too big to fail? Well, look, I mean, if Samsung or Hyundai or LG were to fail, um, that would be absolutely devastating for South Korea's economy. Now, all of the sort of larger ones that sort of fall potentially under that, maybe... I mean, that... Because it was... Um, <laughs> It was a take or leave it, but like I have friends who worked for uh, Dawu, and it was the third, uh, it was the fourth biggest uh, cobalt at the time, and it failed. Yeah, well, I mean, and hey, how did that sort of impact the uh, the South Korean economy at the time? Well, they were, I think, they were bought up by General Motors after after a while, so it wasn't wasn't that bad. But it was like it was during the dot com crash, so everything was tanking. Yeah, so so it was I the Asian financial Asian financial crisis. Yeah, so, well. yeah. So, so so it was devastating in the same way that um, you know a lot of people say that most uh, sort of major financial institutions in America, especially sort of around the time of two thousand and eight, were too big to fail. Um, you know, it, it's got much the same problem, but uh, it's even more complicated, uh, even more concentrated. Sorry, because uh, as opposed to having you know dozens of financial institutions, uh, we're talking about sort of you know realistically these days. 
three corporations which are responsible for just huge, huge uh, sort of uh, parts of the South Korean economy, which is, um, you know, kind of a scary predicament. I mean, I think for, I think the danger for South Korea is they don't really have an entrepreneurial spirit. People are growing up to be essentially like well, their education turns them into essentially uh, slaves for these kobolds. Well, if you have like a very free thinking, uh, creative idea, you need to go to like America to express the idea and turn to a business. Like that's what America is for. And that's why those South Koreans who are very creative go to America. While the, one, the ones who are really, really industrious, like stay in South Korea to build up the kobolds. Because the dream of these people are just to go work for a kobold for the rest of their life. Well, the dream of like a creative person is to go to America. Yeah. And you wonder how that... Uh, so I mean, basically uh, Japan. Yeah, so like, I mean, wonder how that's sort of been influenced by uh, Japan and the sort of salaryman culture over there. Because I, I, would, think, I, I, think would, you... I would argue that, that Japan has much more of a culture than, than South Korea in that sense. And yeah, I mean, it's not to say that... Um, the salaryman, yeah. Yeah, they don't have the salaryman culture. It, it, you know, it's very similar between the two countries, but I would say that's sort of more of an infliction on the uh, Japanese economy than it would be necessarily on uh, South Korea's economy. Not to say that... Yeah, Japan has a slightly different system because uh, originally they had the Zaibatsu, which were like the same thing. They had one family controlling a uh, controlling one super mega company like Mitsubishi. And after after the war, they had they started a different system, which is basically a bunch of uh, groups of companies that came together that have basically all of their needs within this group of companies like all their supply chains everything is inside that that group all the financing everything and these groups are competing with each other they're not controlled like by one family but they're basically each one of these groups are self-sufficient in terms of like production and yeah, supply. So you, I mean, you're just like an cooperative. You're describing, yeah, conglomerate. Would you consider that a socialism, a socialism for the rich? Because Bernie Sanders puts it. Yeah, well, look, I mean, that was something I, I couldn't quite understand what you said. Your microphone's a bit echoey, but um, but yeah, so socialism um, for uh, these corporations more so than necessarily sort of the wealthy. Uh, is an issue in well, probably a lot of modern nations, but especially. Uh, in, in sort of South Korea because of this kind of issue that they find where they, you know, are realistically, they, they've sort of, um, you know, been a, a massive proponent of these these companies because they saw, oh, well, look, if we build up these companies, they're going to bring us a lot of wealth, and they did. Uh, but now these companies are sort of somewhat dependent on the back-and-forth relationship they have with the uh, South Korean government, and they kind of, you know, lean on each other in a sense. So, uh, you know, they, they're uh, almost like a weird almost semi-government institution that just employs a lot of people it's uh it's quite an odd thing and you know we sort of see you know corpo nations i suppose uh in america but there's still a very clear divide between what's a company what's government sometimes those lines get a little bit blurry but not nearly as blurry as what you'd see with corporations in um in south korea and i can't honestly for the life of me think of a country on earth where those nations are sort of blurrier outside of potentially you know obviously corporations like uh in china where they're government owned but that's probably something a little bit different what's well, effectively a private company and that's relationship with uh with the government but i, I put it over to you i mean am i just sort of been silly or forgetting about something that's massively obvious 
Excellent. Then I'll just assume that I'm a genius. And absolutely right. <laughs> I mean, you're you're pretty much right on a lot of stuff. I mean, you were the something that air quotes. Big potato. Do you have a question? Sorry, uh, yeah, I, don't, actually, I cut you off. So I'm gonna apologize. No, it's like this because you made the you made the North Korea video right after you like started your YouTube channel. It was like a month and a half, but the South Korea video only came now. Is coincidence? Or was that just because you thought that, be, the, just because you thought that they were like, apart, or maybe that like you wanted to North Korea was more interesting and South Korea was less. Um. Well, I mean, to be honest, there there are a few things to unpack there, and I'll be really, really honest with you guys. Like, obviously, North Korea is much more of a. Uh, infamous nation, I suppose, so it's probably a little bit more clickbaity, right? You know, people will sort of mm. intrinsically sort of want to hear more about this weird, despotic, um, closed-off nation and, and how it sort of relates to its economy, uh, as opposed to South Korea, which is, um, you know, sort of a modern first-world nation, and it's, you know, pretty similar to a lot of Asian-developed countries we see, Japan, and, and not too dissimilar to, to many Western nations that we see, so it's probably a little bit more vanilla, I suppose. Uh, now, not to say that it's not interesting in its own right, and it certainly has some really interesting factoids, like the ones that we explored in the video that make it extremely unique and worth exploring, but... Um, there's two things, and obviously the first one was, you know, North Korea is kind of just the first one that came to mind, and, you know, it was it was pulling some, some shit back then, I don't even remember what it was um, when I kind of made that video, but the other one was, um, you know, I didn't want to put two videos, one next to the other, sort of in that quick of a succession, because, for starters, uh, you know, some people, once they see something about one Korea, they're like, oh yeah, I've already seen a Korea video, uh, you know, I've sort of... You know, a bit bored of that. But the other thing is, of course, I didn't want um, people to necessarily conflate the two and, and think that, you know, they were put into a series because they're some, you know, nation that, you know, is, is similar in any other way but their name and language because realistically they are two very, very different economies. So I don't think, um, you know, the difference between North Korea and South Korea, the, the, the time between those is uh, sort of anything outside the ordinary, uh, you know, as you know, opposed to the time between uh, doing North Korea and Switzerland, you know. Um, they really, really are sort of different different economies, different case studies and different sort of, um, you know, different sort of things need to be addressed with, with these countries. So they're, they're very, very different okay. entities. What what do you think it will happen if they unify economically? Yeah, well, I mean, um, I think to, to, to realistically look at that, what, what was sort of, I put that to you, I mean, Give me an example of when a, you know, modern, capitalist, relatively industrial nation unified with a communist, somewhat backwards, small... Germany. There we go. So, I mean, if we can, yeah, if we look to history, wouldn't sort of the, the unification of uh, East and West Germany be sort of our, our best guidepost to determine what uh, a unified career may look like? Uh, and I think, look, realistically, probably not too bad. Um, you know, obviously... I think uh, it's actually... I think it would be quite close to the upper like, uh, stronger than Japan. So we'll keep like, getting rid of best Korea. Hmm. No, because I think the North Koreans will still want to keep their culture. Or a bit of it. Yeah, I mean, North Korea and South Korea has have been split for a lot more time than Germany has. So I think reunification would be a lot harder. Yeah, like 70 years at this point. People don't give... And the society's changed quite a bit too. 
Of course. But, I mean, look, uh, that... Uh, sorry, East and West Germany had still been split for, you know, probably a generation and a half. So there was still plenty of time for separate cultures to develop. And, um, you know, there were sort of obviously a lot of uh, things to overcome when they, when they came together. But... Um, you know, they sort of overcame that, and today, you know, Germany's obviously a very, very prosperous, you know, well-functioning nation in all areas, so it's not like there's some massive divide between East and West anymore either. Uh, and I do think, yeah, obviously there would be headaches. Um, I do think, obviously, you know, people want to hold on to their, their culture, but that's no different to, let's say, like looking at China, uh, for example, where, you know, obviously they're in sort of a single unified nation, but they have areas and regions that have drastically different cultures than sort of an area on the opposite side of the country and it's not necessarily something that is too much of a burden on their on their economy and obviously that's on a much much larger scale than let's say the careers um, but if they were to unify i think um you know probably would slow down the growth of um, south korea for a little while as it sort of has to pick up the slack but uh, ultimately the sort of investment and the extra sort of manpower and uh, and productive potential of sort of bringing uh, and folding, you know, uh, an extra nation, another a very resource-rich nation as well into the folds would be, you know, beneficial to, to both um, both sides there. And you know, there's probably something to be said about foreign direct investment into a nation where uh, you're not terrified of, um, you know, their despotic brother to the north invading them or nuking them at any point as well. So maybe it will give uh, the international community a little bit more ease with doing business with a, a unified Korea. Um, but of course, anything oh, beyond that is speculation. So we'll give China one less tool to use. Yeah, yeah China would be pissed. Yeah, China would be pissed because then they'll have, um, you know, obviously, uh, you know, a Western sort of ally right, right there on their border. Um, but yeah, but yeah, it's also because they're like with with China are a lot, you know, less, uh, you know, standoffish than they were um, during the Cold War, or even during you know the Korean War. For that matter yeah i guess yeah. they use north korea as like a uh, a buffer well yeah we're in a trade war but uh we keep these guys in line so uh we we have something to bring to the negotiating table that's true they do they do leverage that saying hey we're keeping this little rascal you know keeping them from from throwing away the dinner table so you know Kind of can you pass be a shame can you pass someone would be... Yeah, can you pass us the butter so this rascal doesn't we don't otherwise we're gonna like let the rascal, rascal go. Yeah. Also, be a shame somebody would just let him drink a Red Bull and run around the place. Yeah. Hey, do you think the uh South Korean model could work in Africa, like give tons of money to really rich rich centralized businesses? Like let them employ a pile of people to try to jumpstart their I That's think, already happening. Yeah, I think um, the, the problem is a lot of the uh, African nations don't actually have that money to... What's your favorite video that you've ever posted? Oh, one, one question at a time, but I will get to that. Uh, I'm sorry. Um, yeah, I think it, it could work, and we're sort of seeing it a lot with like foreign direct investment into into Africa, especially from countries like China. Uh, and I think it will be ultimately something that is beneficial. Now, it probably won't be as beneficial as, let's say, the Korean system, where it was kind of the country itself uh, investing that money through the sort of foreign aid that it received from, from America still. But uh, nevertheless, it was its money, so it could kind of directly reap the rewards. Um, but I think ultimately that kind of investment, that kind of industry obviously builds prosperity of its own. And uh, yeah, look, I mean, realistically, that sort of transition from agrarian to, to industrial 
uh, and from sort of subsistence farming to you know industry will be sort of a hugely beneficial thing for the for the African continent and it has so much potential as soon as people sort of realize that it's like something where you know look I mean I mean put it this way I'll put it to you actually this is this is sort of the best way I think of it because I actually sort of you know I'm, I'm fortunate enough to, to work um, sort of not directly in investment banking but um, but sort of parallel to, to global banking sort of initiatives um, and, and someone was talking about investment in South Africa and they sort of said, well, look, you know, obviously you have an investment portfolio of your own and, you know, that's to support you in retirement or, you know, make you more money or, or whatever it is that you use your investment portfolio for. How do you feel about investing into to Africa? You know, what would be the first thing that would come to mind, you know? Uh, anyone that here that, that invests here um, sort of for, for long-term kind of gains, what would, what would be your sort of first thought when I sort of say, oh, well, I've got an investment for you in Africa? Are you like, you're not assuming that we're knowledgeable of investments. You're assuming that we're, you know, mom and dad, the person. Mom and dad. dad. Yeah. So I can speak on that. Uh, the lay person would be like, nope, 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 nope. And that will go on for another five minutes of just nope. Yeah. Because the first thing that people think of when Africa, they think of, oh, well, obviously civil wars, you know, unrest, poverty. So it's not exactly something where your, your mind automatically switches to, oh, there's so much wealth there. Uh, and of course, you know, things like scams and, and shit like that. Um, yeah. you know, they've got people, you know, rightfully or, or, or otherwise sort of conflate uh, investment in Africa with, uh, you know, sort of uh, a fool's game, basically. Exactly. Um, and, you know, that sort of trickles down to institutions in the same way that even though, like, let's say a major investment bank like, uh, let's say, HSBC, um, decides to make that sort of move. They're still ultimately beholden to their investors, and the majority of their investors, at the end of the day, are mum and dads. You know, that have their pension funds, or you know, maybe a little bit of stocks and stuff like that. And you know, if they come to their uh, shareholders meeting and say, "Hey, guys, I've just spoken to a prince from from Africa, and they've got this great investment opportunity for you," yeah. they're going to be like, "What the? F Absolutely not." So even though an institution might be able to um, you know, sort of look into investment opportunities in Africa with a little bit more panache than, than someone making sort of a baseline, uh, you know, unfounded assumption about investment into the region. They are still ultimately beholden to people that have those kind of mentalities. Uh, and that's going to be, you know, sort of the big drawback to, to Africa, you know. And I mentioned that in the Democratic Republic of the Congo video. You know, no one wants to invest I, I would in say that that's changing that's just, quite rapidly, just, especially because yeah. Jack Dorsey um, is going to Africa this year. He's going to be spending a few months there. Uh, and also, uh, Elon is planning to create Starlink. Um, Alibaba and the rest are investing heavily into it. So the biggest problem that I've seen with African investment is that it kind of seems like neocolonialism, in which you have a uh, American, usually, um, a C-class, a CEO, CEOs, etc., and then you have everyone else at the bottom. And it's not just uh, white, but it, it's Asian as well. So it seems like the country is being colonized again, and it's that lack of confidence that's kind of putting the country down, I mean, the continent down as a whole. Uh, Jumi is an excellent example, since it fell mostly because people start to realize that it was just pretending to be an African company, and all, like, all or not if if not most of the uh, shareholders were uh, European. And all of the people that ran the company were European. They just pretended to be an African company. And the stock, uh, their market capitalization went down from 4 billion to around, around $440 million or so. So there's a lot of potential. It's just that people don't trust that uh, on both sides. It's kind of seems like a geopolitical game at this point. 
in which Asia is trying to sabotage America and Europe and it's the other way around. Yeah, and I don't think that, that's probably fair. And hey, potentially apologies from my end from, from kind of looking at it from my own selfish point of view. Of course, there's two sides to every story and, uh, you know, potentially there's just as much yeah. on the, uh, you know, the receptive, yeah, receptive side of it. Um, but... Uh, but yeah, look, I mean, that, that's sort of neither here nor there. Um, now, sorry, uh, that, was a, that was a bit of a tangent because we were talking about South Korea, but that's okay. Um, I like tangents, don't yeah. you guys? Uh, but mm-hmm. uh, Baked Potato, had, as long as it's not about kangaroos. Uh, Baked Potato, you had a question, though. Yeah, it's just real quick. It's about what was your favorite video that you... Because I don't know why, but I wanted to see if like other people would agree with you. Oh, um, that's a really good question. Look, I mean, um, in terms of the one that I had the most sort of fun producing, uh, like, I mean, they're, they're, they're pretty different. Um, and I probably sound pretty arrogant sort of saying, oh, well, looking back on my works. Um, but I would say, look, it would come down to like Norway. Obviously, that was kind of the, the impetus to start my channel. Um, I had done. Oh, God, get a room together. No, I know. Yeah, I mean, I, I um, sort of really, really enjoy like um, sort of learning about sort of the ins and outs of this this weird and fascinating economy that kind of just seemed to do everything right. And, uh, you know, I was like, oh, you know, that, that's really interesting. You know, I, I kind of want to sort of put together a little something to just sort of like lay it out. And, uh, you know, and that was probably, you know, one of the, the first videos that sort of ever went up on the channel. And, it, and currently it's still the, the, the first video that still remains. Uh, other than is that, it? I think, uh, yeah, it is. It's the, the first wow. video. There was two videos on, um, uh, there was two videos on, on neoliberalism, um, but they were removed for, for, to revisit at a later date, um, because at mm. that time I was sort of, uh, just kind of basically reading off old, uh, university essays that I had assembled and, you know, probably didn't get them a, a, a fair shake, uh, from, from both sides of the, from the, the corridor, I suppose. So yeah. they will be re-explored. And other than that, I think, um, in terms of one that I was able to speak with, with, most kind of uh sort of knowledge because it, it not only sort of my field of study but also my field of work was was high frequency trading uh, and then just for general interest was uh, was the video on the netherlands and, and how they're just a, a massive tax haven because it was just kind of hilarious to see yay I'm surprised you did not see eve online <laughs> very Ooh, I, disappointment i have a question on uh like instead of like having all those huge budgets like photos and like the huge videos do you think you'll just like take the script and stick into the podcast for an hour so like someone like me who lost an hour just deliver day um well i mean look to be honest my uh my videos don't 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 exactly run huge budgets um they're they're pretty uh you know they're pretty straightforward you know they kind of do their do their part and hopefully they're somewhat visually interesting but primarily of course uh, i think people watch them for beautiful glorified powerpoint presentations yeah, more or less. I mean, I'm not going to lie to you guys. Um, but uh, yeah, look, I, I mean, I think I have uh, when the I, I, hmm, I'm sort of like setting it as a potentially like a subscriber mark that I, I kind of plan on doing, um, you know, like a what's the what's the word I'm looking for? I really don't want to say Joe Rogan experience type sort of setup. Um, where I can bring in sort of interesting people to talk about, um, you know, particular economic issues and stuff like that. Because I feel like I'd, I'd be able to have enough of a contact base to potentially put one of those together every week. Uh, and would it be interesting? I'm not sure. Would you watch it? Oh, I'm not cool. sure. Yes. Uh, but maybe that's something yes, for... Yes. Um, yeah, maybe, that, maybe that's you? something from the, for the second channel. You can channel. Like bring on people from all three bets. Fun. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, there, there you go. I mean, like, uh, just, just here in Australia, like, obviously, like, contacts within work, you know, people from global banking and stuff like that, professors from universities, um, as well as, you know, like, uh, interestingly enough, like, a few of the uh, game developers from the games that I have sort of done the things on have sort of reached out to me and sort of said, oh, well, look, now, would you be interested in, you know, sort of doing something that's probably a little bit more marketable to us? And I said, oh, well, look, that's not really what I'm here for. But, you know, thanks for sort of reaching out potentially, like, if, if we can sort of sit down and have a discussion, that might be something I'm interested in. So uh, people have been suggesting it. And, um, yeah, the only reason I've held off is because I don't want to share my beautiful face with you guys. It's a, it's a mystery that I promised to to sort of give away at 500,000 subscribers, and I feel like we're kind of close to that now. You can just be like CPG Grey, dude. You know, he, he still hasn't shown his face in his cortex. Yeah, no, you can do an animated okay. version of your face. Just like release an animated version of your face. Or I'll just wear like, like a doodle. I'll just I'll just wear a uh, a pie tray on my face with like the EE logo printed across no. it. EE, you know uh, CPG Grey, yeah. right? Everyone, yeah, of course, of course, of course. Yeah, everyone knows CPG Okay, I I have a question on South Korea. Oh, because it seems to be derailing. So there we go. Okay, so uh, recently, so, so South Korea's entire growth was not entire growth, but most of the growth was funded through foreign direct investment from America mostly, uh, especially during the um, uh, civil war. And I guess South Korea is in a, a very difficult position now, especially because Trump is not necessarily the most open to free trade uh, from American president in a very long time. So. Uh, South Korea is in a very difficult situation in which it wants to get closer to China uh, to get access to its market because its products are very popular there. And on the other hand, it wants to make America happy. And on the other side, uh, South Korea and uh, Japan aren't friendly at all. South Korea is in a... Uh, okay. Yeah, so South Korea and Japan aren't friendly at all and they're uh, in extremely bad trade war. At least they were, I'm not too sure about now. But yeah, so don't, do you think that South Korea would be able to maintain its quote-unquote sovereignty in the region, or do, or do you think it will uh, be able? It would partner up with someone uh, militarily. It can switch uh, from, like, let's say, for example, relying on America for security and relying on China for economy. Uh, it can like play both parts, but it would be. It it just doesn't have much. Uh, leverage, I would say. Like, what do you think is the future of South Korea's economy and stability? Yeah, uh, its security, etc. Well, look, I mean, of course, that's that's sort of in the realm of speculation, where my say isn't necessarily better than anyone else's, and and of course, um, yeah, you know, it, it could be completely wrong. But uh, it's one of those sort of difficult things where, um, of course, you know, South yeah. South Korea has been. Um, you know, a strong ally in the region of the United States. But again, of course, it has to look after its own people as the priority. And, um, you know, mm -hmm. and, and no nation's loyalty lasts forever. Uh, and it ultimately has to do what's best. And, you know, societally, of course, you know, the closest kind of technical ally it has is, is Japan. Um, but obviously the cultural um, uh, relationship is, is extremely poor um, between, uh, you know, South Korea and Japan. Uh, and for... I, I would say it's. I would say it's increasing rapidly. From speaking to my Korean and Japanese friends, I would say the biggest problem is the older generation. They, they are very anti-Japan. Yeah, they hate each other. The younger generation, honestly, Especially doesn't care. The in fact, they are culturally similar. Yeah. In a lot of ways, because they've been Westernized so much. So their old Korean ways and Japanese ways are slowly dying off, and even Japan has started to open up recently. 
Yeah. So I'd say it's mostly government welfare. Yeah, of course. And and look, I mean, um, uh, technically on paper they are, of course, allies. You know, probably one of the the, the you know, uh, they probably wouldn't. They they were like the equivalent of uh, you know two people that weren't friends at school uh, originally, and then they went to a new school, and the you know, people that they know in in the new school, and you know they kind of have to begrudgingly get along with each other because uh, otherwise they're just going to get squeezed. Yeah. Uh, I suppose to, to really push an analogy, but um, I would say, look, unfortunately, I, I kind of do see um, a sort of more of a shift to to embracing sort of China as it becomes sort of more of a power in the region. Because you're exactly right, um, you know, the, the dollar signs are really, really tempting, and and while they can probably get away with um, sort of trading and taking advantage of the huge consumer market within China, then you know they will, uh, and then and as more as they're relying on that. You know, very very profitable export market. Uh, China has a unique way of kind of putting their claws into things, and um, yeah, sure you're relying on us, and but we use that more so, I think, than than America does, um, which is you know something that's potentially frightening because, of course, that's sort of like between Japan and South Korea, those are kind of like the bastion of democratic stability in in sort of that that region of Asia. So uh, yeah, well, I mean, it could be something that turns, but. Uh, you know, of course, uh, sort of recent developments, I don't know, who, who uh, sort of knows, uh, it might be that, uh, you know, South Korea kind of uh, gets a bit of a pick-me-up if, uh, you know, supply chains stay down in um, China for, for too much longer. Yeah, I, yeah South Korea has... As a certain Azerbaijani would say, there are no personal, uh, there are no permanent... Uh, allies only permanent interests. Well, yeah, that's true. Yeah, I mean, but the, like, the interests are they are both. For example, the coronavirus probably can bring the, everybody together. <laughs> uh, hey, Eve, why do you think there's such like a huge gap between males and females in the working spaces like South Korea? That, like, I know after World War II, America had started to equalize. Like, there's the half like workers female, half the workforce was male. Why hasn't this like equalized in countries like South Korea, Japan? Because they have like, a culture, they have culturally, um, culture, but should like the economics of having half your population start to work like go these cobalts and like produce stuff to the system? Like, mass that's, that's happening with Japan, it's called womanomics or abenomics, like they're forcefully pushing takes, women. The thing is, it into, takes time because the older generation, the conservative female, ones, what, what are they? Oh, uh, wait, you kind of just like talked over each other. Yeah. Uh, who said what? I was saying the older generation needs to die off because they're the most conservative and they're the ones who are like, what, woman working? No, she has to be like a pretty little housewife who's a virgin and completely pure. That's all. Thank you. That's Thank you for that. They have to die. They have to die. Yeah. You know what? Uh, Let's not go too much into pulse. that. Please. For the past three weeks, no. we've been talking about old people dying. I'm actually starting <laughs> to think it's a subconscious trait. Yeah, let's not, let's not go that Because spoke there. about it last week. Yeah, let's not and go that like, way. Oh, I remember that. Um, I, I, will, I will never forget that like economics explained that, that uh, <laughs> killing old people is good. I never forget oh. that. That's, well, that's, 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 that's not what he said. Take it out of context. going out of context. No, all right. I'm using God mode. You all shush, shush. Silence, my children. Silence. 
Uh, okay, so the question was um, the question was uh, income inequality uh, sort of in the workforce in in, in Korea, uh, and again, you know, it's it's one of those things where um, it, it's ultimately, of course, sort of a societal thing, as you know, income inequality probably has always been. You know, technically, even in Western cultures, it was a societal thing that you know up until recently we kind of you know conflated women with staying at home, having kids, um, and you know working in the kitchen or, or, or kind of whatever uh, sort of outdated sort of things we had back then. And, uh, you know, ultimately sort of career sort of, you know, in a sense still sort of holds on to that. And, you know, they're probably just a little bit behind us. I sort of see that that will come up, uh, that will sort of ultimately kind of uh, equalise in sort of the coming years. But, uh, you know, it's just one of those things where they still mm. sort of have those, those um sort of more traditional sort of ideologies about um this that and everything else and you know perhaps they just haven't had had time to work their way up the corporate ladder yet but i'd say look uh even though they still have that sort of salary men kind of uh culture um which tends to be very uh male driven it's like you know you'll you know you 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 go to work at sort of six o'clock in the morning you work for sort of 10 hours a day and you know after that you go drinking with your boss and your boys and uh, you get drunk that. and you, you yeah. get into uh, you get into mm-hmm. the office at the same time and do it all over again, uh, and maybe that's not sort of very conducive to women in the workplace. But I, I sort of see that kind of culture, you know, starting to fade. What's the demographic of your videos? Hang on, Sibley, Sibley, Mister Steal your memes. I think is that wants to ask a question. Can I ask a question? Yeah. All right. You guys hear me? right? Yes. Okay, Mr. Stewart. All right. first I, I really want to know. I'm so curious. What's happened to this Samsung CEO? Like, it's, it's super interesting. What the hell is going on? Oh, can uh, I see this? I know it. Yeah, so uh, the Samsung CEO uh, is presumed to be dead. But what they do is, as soon as he dies, like, uh, the South Korean inheritance laws will take up income. So, what they're trying to, so what his son and his family did is they're trying to keep his death, uh, like, a secret until, like, the uh, South Korea. Like a company starts to fall in value, so if they do sell this when they sell his uh, market share, and like and so his son's gonna inherit it, he'll like he'll have a larger sec a larger portion of of the market because it'll be cheaper when he sells it. Okay, cheers. But uh, maybe they're keeping him on ice so they can revive him when the technology is available. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's it's like the reason why like inheritance laws are so screwed up. It's essentially like a wealth tax. But wouldn't uh, mass selling and if he sells his result in a... then, he, then the uh, company screwed because like the entire thing would just be sold off immediately. Yeah, that makes sense, I guess. Unless uh, the South Korean government changes the inheritance laws before that. Yeah, yeah. yeah but uh, like, wouldn't the mass sell off just uh, create a recession, a recession in the economy? Yeah, it's one of those it's one of those difficult things because um, you know Samsung in particular it's. Now, the country's largest industry, and, and I'm not sure exactly what the wealth tax is, but it's it's pretty steep. I mean, it, it would sort of 70%. amount to holy shit. Ah, uh, jeez. Okay, well, right. Yeah, well, look, yeah, look, seventy. Like mostly, usually the president will like literally like let these companies like go off maybe like fifty or forty percent, but Moon Jae-in especially is like not giving any favors to Samsung. So, so, so hypothetically, sort of think about that, and let's say a Western context. Let's say Tesla. Um, you know, uh, Elon Musk. Um, owns a good portion of shares in in Tesla, right? 
Uh, and let's say, you know, effectively the company's worth $100 billion, of which, you know, he probably has, let's say, $20 billion worth of equity. He probably owns about 20%. Now, I'm not sure if those numbers are correct, but let's just roll with that, okay? Um, now, let's say Elon Musk dies, if he can die, which he can't because he's a cyborg. Uh, but let's say hypothetically he does. Um, well, what that would mean is that the, the government would then put its hand out and say, you know, hello, uh, I would like $14 billion, please, because when you died, your net worth was $20 billion based on your equity stake in Tesla. And okay, and then everybody go, oh, all right, well, okay, well, now I need to sell $14 billion worth of Tesla stock. And what do you think that would do to what is already a very hyperactive market? And crash it. It would destroy it. And the same well, as hope, well. Hopefully uh, intelligent investors would buy up that and it, the price would stabilize. Of course. That's, that, you know, there, there, there hypothetically. Would, there would be that kind of pressure. But of course, on top of that, the news is going to come that, you know, uh, Supreme Leader Elon has, has carked it. Uh, plus, now we're going to have to sort of sell off a shit ton of shares. Uh, that's, a, that's a pretty heavy downward force on, on any kind of market. And that means that, you know, if they ever want to sort of raise capital or things like that, uh, they're going to be sort of influenced with that. And there are obviously knock-on effects in terms of consumer confidence and all that kind of stuff throughout the economy. Now, Tesla... Um, is obviously pretty small fry uh, in relation to how, how how big it is compared to the uh, American economy as compared to South uh, Samsung for the South Korean economy. So, um, you know, those sort of issues have just become sort of larger and larger. And that's why everyone's kind of just sort of saying, yep, yep, he's alive. Do not worry about it. And it's kind of like, you know, they're just kind of wheeling him out to family events and, you know, pronging his, his, his mouth. Oh, not, not, not really. They've kind of just kept him secret in a in a um, sort of a medical lab that they own. But uh, yeah, it's one of those, one of those really, really interesting sort of things um, that is in his eye. But uh, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know what yeah, will eventually come of that. It's pretty yeah, crazy. I feel, I, feel, I feel like he's going to, on paper, be the world's oldest man. So he's like, yep, yep, 160 yeah. years old. Yeah, he's still alive. Don't worry about it. Oh, they're, they're mostly <laughs> just waiting for the president because usually the, what the president does in South Korea is like waves like the, uh, waves like huge insurance things on major footballs. Cause there's there's like a huge relation but moon jae-in like had like his predecessor like fired like he's like the law and order president of south korea and like he's like that really powerful socialist one right now and he's like he has like no favors for any of the cobals so they're just literally waiting until he uh, leaves office so they can elect someone that's more like forgiving of the, the huge inheritance why, why not just transfer the the shares directly to whoever's owing it why would they need to sell it all because uh, transferring is selling. Transferring is, and it says, oh, okay. uh, this context would be selling. If, if he does die, all 70% of his net worth will be taxed. You made it clear. Uh, yep. Yep, yep, yep. That makes sense. Can, can I ask a question? Yes, yes. Uh, how do you compare infrastructure to education in terms of which one would be more important to a developing nation? Ooh, that's a really good question. I kind of like that. And actually, sort of not something that I've actually put too much thought to because, of course, um, you can't really have one without the other if you want economic prosperity. There's no point having a brilliant nation full of all the best infrastructure in the world if, you know, your, your populace is too dumb to use it. Uh, and in the same vein, it's very, very hard to build that infrastructure if you don't have you know, an, an intelligent population to actually sort or of the facilitate need, that Or the need for it. There's also, we're talking about the need for it, so... Yeah, you, yeah. You can have. It, there's no reason to have brilliant bridges and you know interconnected highways that run through, say, very poor, undeveloped communities because those communities won't be using those services. Yeah, like the Chinese are doing now with the one run one road 
built whatever yeah, since that's that's a little different that's yeah that's, no they're I building highways through like i don't know romania it, that are simply not being used it's it's yeah well it's not necessarily to facilitate trade within those sort of things it's it's to facilitate it otherwise but um but yeah look i mean ultimately it's a giant uh, sort of, death uh, death trap i mean it, it wouldn't be too much of a cop-out to say um you really can't have one without the other it's like, I don't know, if, if you play like a, an RPG, it's like, you know, chucking all your skills into one very particular niche field. Yeah, sure, you'll do that really well, but uh, your character's still going to suck because uh, it's not going to have sort of the, the balance that it needs to, you know, go in and adapt to sort of different situations. Uh, which so I know you can't like... min-max an economy. No, and I know that sounds like the most boring uh, answer ever, but you know, effectively that's the truth of it, right? Um, you can't have a, a dumb population with brilliant infrastructure and, you know, all, all the sort of, you can have a population full of, you know, uh, PhD professors and if they, you know, literally live in rice paddies, well, it's kind of all for nothing, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. I, I have a question. question. Currently, we're having that kind of discussion here in the U.S. because it's a matter of, well, which, what should we spend our money on? Like, the U.S. has poor education system and we have a poor, our infrastructure is, like, very low rated. Uh, so it's a matter of, well, which... Better than Quebec. Which one are we going to be paying? Yeah, Did I just well, cut out there? Yeah, well, I think in the US, unfortunately, they, they've probably got an issue of they're not they're not really investing enough into, into either. You know, public infrastructure is sort of historically yeah. been something that's, uh, you know, probably a little bit on the fritz. And, uh, and of course, um, you know, uh, their education system probably leaves a lot to be desired. Now, uh, whether that's an issue of funding or whether that's an issue of curriculum or, or whatever it may be, uh, ultimately, it does need to um, probably be addressed because I think both of those can sort of be a serious hindrance on, on the economic prosperity of, of a nation. And a lot of people, you know, even hardcore uh, capitalists, you know, investors and stuff like that overlook this, you know. Let's take a, a corporation, and I know this is an aside, but maybe we'll be able to circle it back to... Um, uh, well, actually, no, no, let's look at it from, from a South Korean perspective. You know, take a, take a corporation like uh, Samsung, right? Uh, obviously, a huge, massive, sort of influential company within South Korea it employs lots of people, um, but it's a lot of it, you know, even outside the kind of weird relationship it has as a semi kind of weirdly government intertwined agency, um, it is still sort of very heavily dependent on the nation. You know, if it's sort of producing phones, it needs to sort of ship those phones across the country. Chances are that's going to happen through. Uh, you know, public roadways and things like that. And, you know, it's going to send its trucks out driving on those roadways. So it's taking advantage of public infrastructure in the same way, uh, you know, its it, its employees, its its workforce are sort of heavily dependent on making sure that they have a safe and secure sort of place to go and, you know, sleep at night so that they can be happy and productive when they get back to work. And that's to do with, you know, emergency services in the nation. That's to do with, you know, having a police force and a defence force and, and things of that nature. And okay. all of these kind of companies sort of, uh, it's very hard, it's very easy to say, oh, they exist in isolation, but they are still very heavily dependent on uh, the services of the nation, potentially even more so than, uh, you know, individual participants because, uh, you know, they, they sort of utilise a lot of these um, things, which is why a lot of people say, well, you know, maybe they should probably start to pay their fair share of taxes. What What is that? That's kind of... Crazy. Could I, could I it's a wallpaper. All right, let's pretend that yeah. conversation did not happen. So I, I, have a, I have a question. I have a question that's kind of unrelated. Okay. Uh, will you be willing to do either streams or videos of playing Democracy Free? <laughs> What's what that? The? 
What is that sound? It's basically it's the great economic simulator. Oh, how about that, eh? Well, wouldn't it be wouldn't it be uh, so terrible if I was absolutely useless at it? That would be disheartening. And there's also a uh, standalone expansion, Democracy Free Africa. Oh, lordy. Hard mode. The game starts and ends at the same time. Hey, Can we just go hey, with Moi uh, 4? Uh, it, it, it's really good. Like, like, it's, really, it's, it's really interesting. Uh, it's, well, very, uh, it's very detailed. To be, to be yeah, honest, I think, go I think um, on the second channel, I'm going to expand um, sort of what I do. Because right now, it, it's only Q&A streams, and that's pretty much it. Try um, but I do, like, if I do actually sort of make something of this podcast, I, I probably, like, because, man, I, I love, like, playing video games, and I, unfortunately, I don't have enough time, really, to do it anymore. But if I can sort of somehow make it as an excuse to go and play some video games, hell, yeah, I will. Uh, I'll just, uh, you know. because no, you can, like, go uh, take I'm on the South African economy yeah. and try fixing it. Oh, lordy. Yeah. No yeah, I'll, I'll play with you. I'm also... Is that possible? <laughs> yeah, there you go. We, we, can, we can start. Game, if I ask a question... What, what Economic so, explained uh, Civilization 6 or Civilization 5. Go. Uh, someone did Can have I a question, and I, I will let you answer it after I do this. No, no. I want uh, okay. I want you all to, to, to migrate over and start uh, an EVE Online corporation with me, and like slowly, like we're just like nerding. I have been trying to do that with everybody here. When you're not around, I've been trying to teach people how to play EVE. I'm watching, I've been broadcasting, uh, and I want to start a corporation with you as the CEO. But no ah. I mean, if you say it though, they'll probably get more interested. <laughs> there you go. Well, we can we can uh, we can live stream our our shenanigans over on um, the second channel and yeah, things like that. I, I've been sort of looking to to expand the repertoire of of bits and pieces that we do. Like obviously, uh, you know, keep the the main channel just what it is. You know, little videos about e uh, sorry economics and uh, you know, sort of maybe be a bit more adventurous with the second channel. Now that will include hopefully those um, uh, those live streams. Uh, sorry, those uh, sort of podcast style interviews with with some interesting people. If I can convince some interesting people to be my friend. Okay, sorry. Uh, <laughs> that's out of the way. Someone had a question and I said I would answer it in the I, I said, uh, would you ever make an yeah. economic explanation uh, of civilization? Oh, uh, sorry, I, I, no, like I think to, it was Charles. Yeah. I'd like to ask, like, for a developing country, for you, what's, like, a better way to, like, develop an economy? Would it be better if you Ooh. focus on local industry? Or would, you, would it be better to focus on foreign direct investments? Yeah, so you probably can't have one without the other, and, and ultimately it's one of those things where you kind of need that little kickstart. Uh, and foreign direct investment is a good way of doing that. You know, there's sort of two ways that you can do that. One is ultimately, um, you know, if you have natural resources, export them and, and redirect that invest, you know, uh, wealth back into investing into local industries. Or, uh, you know, if you don't have that, um, you know, sort of making yourself a desirable location for foreign direct investment. Now, ways that you can do that you have a very sort of cheap labor force, you know, people will invest into your country to take advantage of that labor force. And hey, you know, look, whether that's good or bad or, you know, sort of morally onerous or questionable or just something that's that's kind of the way it is, uh, it does give you some money and that can be sort of used to, you know, go back to, to educating your population so that they become sort of more productive employees, which means you can charge more for your, uh, you know, your exports and things like that. I think you kind of need that kickstart. Well, I think what com uh, countries get wrong uh, where we see this is they get this wealth. Now, let's say it's through foreign direct investment or if it's through, uh, you know, exporting their natural resource wealth. 
uh, they, they see this influx of cash and they're like, you beauty. And they do one of two things. They either sort of give it all back to uh, the people in sort of ways that aren't potentially that great. And, you know, obviously it's very popular, but, uh, you know, it becomes basically a welfare state, with, like, you know, what we saw in Venezuela, uh, or it all goes to corruption. Um, and, you know, obviously, you know, the, the leaders of the country use it to line their pockets and the friends' pockets and kind of build out a totalitarian state, which is obviously not great as well. Um, but if you can effectively sort of leverage either that foreign indirect investment or, you know, natural resource wealth investment, put it back into building bridges and roads and infrastructure, educating your population, building and developing sort of local companies and corporations, then normally you can kind of do quite well. Even if you aren't necessarily blessed with, um, you know, uh, anything outside of that. Ergo, South Korea um, and that sort of like the sort of path that they took. Um, a question. So I know you've talked in the past about Dutch disease. Have you talked about the resource curse? Because I mean, you were just talking. You you were just talking about the resource curse in that instance right there. But like, have you actually done a video on it? No. I mean, I've touched on it, and I haven't done anything particularly on it. Um, and I think I want to actually sort of put a few videos on countries together before I sort of address it specifically because we've seen it in. Uh, well, uh, not really in North Korea. I would say they, they have issues outside of that. But let's say the Democratic Republic of the Congo, Venezuela. Yeah. Um, we see it in a lot of countries that we've explored. And it's sort of like this thing where it's like, oh, well, um, these countries seem like they should be good. And then we can kind of use those examples, case studies, and sort of follow the leads that, well, they all had one thing in common. They all should have been really, really rich because they had this abundance of this beautiful, you know, easily exportable natural resource. And But they're not. Ah. They're not. And, um, you know, obviously on a smaller scale, uh, I, I kind of want to conflate it um, with uh, lottery winners because uh, it's effectively the same thing, you know. Uh, it's kind of, it, it, you know, financial success tends to have sort of this inverse relationship with actually winning the lottery, which seems so dumb and so yep. like counterintuitive. But the same thing kind of happens on this smaller scale where we get these people that have all this money and no idea how to actually properly use it. Um and you know they end up sort of all that all the poorer for it. Yeah. So when you, yeah, I mean, when you do, uh, uh, eventually you're gonna get through every country. So eventually you're gonna hit Djibouti, and when you get to Djibouti, Djibouti has a very weird resource curse, because it's not a physical resource, but it's rather a um, a militaristic uh, resource. They are just really good positioned uh, as a naval port. Um, and they can charge obscene fees to mm. basically house militaries. So I'd look into that. that oh, that's, yeah. They also have food. Resource curse, but weird. <laughs> oh, I knew someone was going to say that. Actually, if no one else said that, I was going to say that. Like, <laughs> <What> Jabooty. <laughs> Jabooty. Um, uh, yes. Do you have a, like, a book recommendation list? I've, I've been reading like a lot of Matt Ridley uh books like uh the rational optimist i just finished the war of normal people from andrew yang i'm trying like i'm getting to like the intelligent investor and black swan do you have do you, do you have your own re uh, reading list uh to be honest i am not a like a book person so um you know a lot of people sort of uh taking taking aside from that uh most of my reading is is either like it's two ends of the spectrum it's either like reddit <laughs> Uh, or it's like uh, scholarly articles or, or textbooks or things of that nature. Um, but uh, I think, look, there are potentially sort of some that I'd recommend. Like it sounds like it's kind of a, 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 a sort of a mix up between like personal finance and 
um, actual sort of, uh, you know, sort of general kind of uh, looks at society sort of books there. Um, I, I would say, look, I mean, if you, if you, for personal finance, the only book um, that I kind of um, took any credence out of uh, was The Millionaire Next Door. I think that's a really, really good book for anyone that hasn't read it and is, is somewhat interested in personal finance. Other than that, I don't know, uh, be boring like me and just read scholarly articles. They're shorter. They kind of get to the point a little bit quicker. Um, and, you know, uh, normally they're from people that are really, really good at and really, really know what they're talking about. The only, the only sort of downside is they're normally pretty dry. Uh, what's your, what's scholarly journals you subscribe to that, and ones that are particu particularly not locked behind paywalls? Yeah, well, like, I mean, most of it, look, honestly, the best secret in the entire world is Google Scholar. Google Scholar is, is absolutely yeah. amazing because in the same way that you can sort of look up sort of, let's say you're interested in a topic. Uh, and obviously, look, I mean, hey, don't look down your, your nose at uh, at things like Wikipedia. Wikipedia is fantastic. Yeah. Um, but if you want sort of that, that little bit more a deeper dive and that kind of weird understanding like that goes beyond sort of a surface level thing, just copy and paste it. Look, you know, like uh, for, for this one, like uh, I, I sort of started with the Wikipedia article on, on South Korean tables and then sort of looked at how it kind of, uh, particularly in acts and normally they focus on things like case studies which kind of makes the whole thing uh, that little bit more interesting as well um, mm -hmm. but as long as they're sort of you know from from reputable sources obviously harvard business review any kind of business reviews from reputable universities um, you're normally in, in a pretty good sort of spot there you know what would be really interesting is if you had uh, a channel on here where you just post what you're reading like mm -hmm. your your scholarly mm -hmm. stuff yeah, well, I mean, uh, to be honest, I uh, I think because a lot of those, you know, a lot of, um, That's okay. sort of journal articles are 20 pages, so um, you get through it sort of pretty quickly. Obviously, there are some that are sort of much more about, depth, but what, what about shorter shorter articles like the in the Economist? They're quite good. Uh yeah, well, I mean, they're um they're sort of more newspaper articles, but. You know, if they're from sort of very, very, uh, there, there are a lot of good reporters there that sort of make some really, really interesting points. And uh, they're obviously sort of a little bit more palatable as well. Uh, but as with everything, just sort of be aware of biases. Now, our scholarly articles aren't obviously free of that. You know, they're, they're still sort of beholden to you know, their author's biases and the biases of the peers that yeah. they have to go through to, to review it. But um, obviously, when you're talking about sort of media outlets, there's there's... You know, probably sort of. Yeah, no, I I have noticed some of the economist um, authors are kind of a bit slanted, but some Paul, of it's good. Some of it. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, uh, they they, it's kind of one of those things, especially Australian, uh, Australian, American, British uh, scholar scholars, kind of just know it's like, oh man, media articles, of course, you know, it's biased, but. Uh, I've noticed that a lot of people sort of in, in countries that haven't sort of been as heavily burdened by the Murdoch media uh, sort of conglomerate uh, are probably a little bit more oblivious to it. Now, that's not to say it doesn't exist in their countries, but it's just so blatant in places like Australia, the UK, uh, and America. It's just, it's absolutely, um, it's absolutely amazing. Uh, do you, just a real quick comment, do you realize that this Discord call is the Discord call that, like, you've had the most people in, I think, ever? How many people are in here? There's, like, 26 or 27. I feel like you've had more. I feel like it's. I've seen this amount of people before. Really? Yeah. 
I don't know. Another thing is, do you think you're ever gonna go into three week uploads? I mean, three uploads a week? <laughs> Absolutely not. No. No. <laughs> I've still got a life, man. <laughs> Even if you reach one mil. No. Maybe. Oh, okay then. Maybe. Let me walk back from that. Like the, the main channel economics explains. That'll, that'll pretty no, much always be. Like, that'll pretty much always no, be like, to a week. But uh, you know, no, maybe if we like, if we mix it out, um, you know, and we uh, you know sort of get some other interesting content like those sort of uh, Q and A sessions with like uh, podcast style sort of interviews with with interesting people over on the second channel or uh, you know video game, maybe there'll be more content more than sort of twice a week. Yeah. But in the meantime, I like, love these Q and A's. God, absolutely not. I am too busy. <laughs> and yeah. then you get ten mil subs, and you're like, yeah, maybe about that. <laughs> Start a uh, Minecraft yeah. Let's Play channel. <laughs> One thing at a time, right? E. Just... <laughs> One That's the pinnacle of YouTube. Yeah. Uh, ultimately, this is this is this is the long con. I just want to, uh, you know, oh. Oh, stop that. Yeah, stop that. Yeah, gonna become a gaming channel, then become a main channel. Yeah, become a gaming slash main channel. Yeah, and then then ultimately, obviously, pivot into okay. Of course. Uh, yeah, then ultimately pivot into uh, you know uh, a podcast channel, which is which is kind of like the uh, you know product life cycle of any sort of somewhat successful YouTube channel. Exactly. But in my opinion, I think the Q and A's that you do is like a super good thing that really I don't know because I didn't study this, but I think the Q and A's really helped your channel because I think it's like a very creative thing because YouTubers usually do them like once a year, once every six months. Uh, well, I mean, whether they do or not, I, I don't really mind. But to be honest, um, and I think I said the same thing when people sort of asked me about it, is, is I ultimately kind of wanted to have these kind of conversations, and that was really the primary motivator for starting this channel yeah. anyway. Uh, so answering questions is something I'd ah. do. If, uh, you know, if, even if three people were talking to me and a thousand people watched my videos at any given time, I, I think it'd totally mm. still be something that I'd do, just because it's kind of, uh, it's interesting. But hey, if it helps channel, fantastic. Uh, if not, Ah, no worries. Still fun. Exactly. What What are your opinions on the TF2 economy as in <laughs> compared to other game economies? So people have asked me about this so much and I don't understand it because I, it, it's a first-person shooter game, isn't it? Like, it... it, it, does, it but like, it's like hats. Yeah, it's like hats. hats. <laughs> it's hats. Cosmetics. <laughs> Cosmetics. Cosmetic economy. Right, so it, it has like... The economy like, of Minecraft's next. So people tr people trade hats. Um, okay, like I mean, I don't I don't know if there's enough meat there. Uh, so many people have asked for it. I just don't understand it. I, I've looked into it. It's like okay, so you know, like people can buy these hats off the game developers and sell these hats to other people, and um, and you, you know, ultimately these hats have values. But it's kind of a pretty it's kind of a pretty two dimensional market. It doesn't have as much depth as say a game like RuneScape or Eve Online or Entropia Universe or even World of Warcraft or anything like that. So. Um, yeah, I don't know. You can buy and trade hats. The end. <laughs> I think it's um it's supported by some really wealthy people who just want to you know buy a shitload of stuff. What's well, not that, that, that that that's ultimately true for for any market out. That there. that all the devs all the devs are um sort of maneuvering the 
internal economy to generate more cash, I think. Who knows? Yeah, well, I mean, yeah. Well, I mean, who, who, who knows? But uh, I think that's probably a bit tinfoil hatty. I think, look, so many people asked for it that I, that I genuinely looked into it. And I was like, oh, okay, well, look, maybe there's something here that I'm missing. And then I was like, okay, well, it's a, you know, it's a, you know, first person shooter oh. game. And there's ultimately sort of basically 20 minute fights and you either win or you lose. And you don't really carry that much over <laughs> from, from any of that. So it's not like there's a developing yeah. economy or anything like that. It's just, okay, you can, you can trade hats. Like, eh. But what is. What if you like? I had a mentality of someone trading real world, real world money for like exchange systems like virtual cosmetics, which they can't access. They can cash out. They can cash out. People can. Because people are insane. Unlike Eve Online, so, uh, where you can't cash out, and those things you can't. But what if he like analyzes a uh, steam market as uh, as a whole, and not just a single game? And uh, maybe that would be more interesting or something. I don't know. Okay, who, who, I mean, who, we... is, who is, who is, who is, Yeah, uh, me, I had a question. So, uh, what do you think of the Indian government being uh, strict on foreign corporations like Amazon and Walmart? And do you think that the companies living in China and which were originally, like, people were thinking that they would, they, they would set up uh, centers in India and now they're going to Bangladesh and Vietnam. So, do you think it's a result of that? Yeah, so um, it's, it's an interesting one because you'd think um, there's this sort of a bit of back and forth there. For, for starters, you know, uh, companies, they want to protect their, their local... Oh my God, whoever is breathing into their mic, I'm going to, I'm going to murder you. Um, <laughs> anyway, um, no, no, it's obviously companies want to protect their, their local uh, industries and they want to make sure that, you know, they still have stable, prosperous uh, businesses as well as employment centres. Um and now that normally sort of pertains to sort of limiting imports and, and things like that that are artificially more competitive than, than the sort of domestic products of, of your country. Uh, but yeah, India is sort of a unique one because it kind of has shunned a lot of these industries and, and sort of made it difficult to sort of set up those kinds of industrial centers, which uh, on paper looks really bizarre because you'd think now of all times, you know, especially with, uh, you know, the Chinese economy shut down effectively because of this, this virus and, you know, supply chains really hurting, you'd think this is the ultimate time to capitalize and sort of facilitate that trade and, hey, you know, maybe become sort of the default country that can take over that sort of, you know, low-cost manufacturing type type thing. You know, they have the population to do it. Uh, you know, they, they have the sort of infrastructure to do it. So, so why not? Um, but I think it ultimately comes down to they, they want to sort of develop their, their own industries. It's bizarre. Look, it, it, it is still sort of ultimately a, a pretty protectionist state. I don't know if I actually really have an idea. It perplexes me because I think you're right. A lot of these companies are going to go, well, okay, well, you guys would have been our first choice. You know, you've got a lot of English-speaking people. You're kind of relatively easy to do business with. You have Commonwealth law, but uh, all right, well, if you don't want it, then we'll we'll look for something else because, uh, you know, that's, that's all we can do. Uh, and that's probably potentially going to be a pretty big missed opportunity for, for the Indian economy. That being said... Um, yeah, because, uh, like, the unemployment is at, like, 45-year uh, 45 year high and even the major one of the major telecom companies is going bankrupt because of some uh taxes or unpaid dues i think like i don't i don't, I don't really know the number but yeah it was on local news Ugh. yeah that's not good really fucked up yeah really fucked up like fifty thousand or so people are going to lose their job like it's heavily in debt uh, I, th I think it was uh, some 
uh, form of collaboration between Vodafone and uh, a local company. So there are only three major players left. And with, without Vodafone, it's going to be about two duopoly. It's going to be a duopoly. Yeah, which is, uh, which is never good. Um, I mean, we, well, for, for, for lack of a better way of putting it, we have that in Australia, or did have that sort of uh, with, with our supermarket chains. And uh, it's not good, but obviously sort of new competitors came onto the scene. Uh, now, how that pertains to sort of encouraging foreign investment, I'm not sure, but... Um, and I think um, sort of not not capital. Look, if I was if I was the Indian government right now, and again, um, you know, take everything with a grain of salt here because I'm not, and you know, obviously there are a few other factors at play. But I'd be like, I would see this 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 uh, this sort of obviously global catastrophe, and I'd be like, you beauty, all right, fantastic. You know what? No, Amazon. I know your supply chains are suffering right now. Come in, set up a supply chain here in in India. Uh, if anything else, it just gives you a little bit of redundancy. We'll make sure that your packages go out. We'll sort of bring everything back up so you're not sort of running running low on everything here. We can get business going for you again. And hey, you know, obviously once China gets back up and running, you, you have the option to go back to them, but maybe you're like us so much that you just decide to stick with us. Uh, and that's sort of a, you know, it's um, very, very easy to sort of attract business that way. And, and people, once they're sort of happy with something, uh, it, it kind of takes a lot to get them to to shift, um, so it, it could really be a fantastic opportunity to attract that kind of business. Uh, now, obviously, that kind of business comes with pros and cons, but um, realistically, it probably would be something that would really, really benefit the economy. And and you know, obviously, the, the drawbacks probably wouldn't uh, probably wouldn't outweigh those benefits. But hey, I'm 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 not the prime minister of India, so uh, who's to say? Sadly. <laughs> Uh, let's go back to South Korea. What, what the problem is with all the like, people who don't want to be like slaves to the cobalt of America? Like, what, what would that be a problem for like long term aspect? Uh, well, it's brain drain. So, um, uh, if, it's, if it's a documented issue, I'm not sure. Um, but uh, if there's if there's sort of a societal shift that look, if I want to be something that's um, if I if I want to have the opportunity to, to start my own business or sort of perform above a certain level or be entrepreneurial, I, if I have to move countries to facilitate that, um, that's brain drain because you lose these sort of potentially very prosperous, very, um, uh, very sort of a, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, yeah, these individuals. Productive. Bring, yeah. Okay. So productive. Yeah. They bring that bring a lot of uh, prosperity to a nation. You know, if you have someone that starts a, you know, a Facebook or an Amazon or a Google or an Oracle or an Atlassian or something like that here in Australia, um, you know, they sort of employ a lot of people, they generate a lot of wealth and, you know, a lot of that wealth ultimately sort of does get back out into, um, you know, a, a country's economy. Uh, and if you sort of are losing people like that to Silicon Valley or, you know, Shenzhen in, in China or, or Tokyo or wherever they end up going, uh, you, you, you're not sort of in a position to actually benefit from that. And hey, effectively, you have paid for them to get this world-class education that they've then taken, pissed off to America and used all that knowledge uh, to benefit the American economy. And um, whether that's a, I'm not sure, if, like it's, it's certainly something that I didn't come across with my research, but it wouldn't be outside the, the scope of possibility that a lot of uh, Koreans are, of course, moving abroad to get access to, to work that's probably uh, a little less, uh, if anything, a little less intense than what they would get working for these mega corporations. Well, what do you think of the, like, the huge war going on right now? Uh, I just started like 10 minutes. Wait, what? Like a turkey 
war in Syria. Oh. Turkey has been at war with Syria for the past four years. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. That's the reason. Like invasion right now. Okay, fine. It's kind of reason. To be honest, yep. I, um, my scope... It's kind of like the last... If this doesn't end the Syrian war, I don't know it will. Nothing. Answer. My, 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 they my just level sent of... all the immigrants into Europe for them to deal with, and now they're just sending their entire army. Look, these things could, this could still take another decade or two to solve. Oh, well, look, I mean, I, I, if I, if I was going to make a prediction, it's that someone somewhere in the Middle East will be at war with someone somewhere else in the Middle East, uh, pretty much indefinitely the into next the future. Billion years. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds fair. The last 10,000 years. It seems like it's probably a, a relatively safe bet, you know. It will this sort of uh, development be any different? Who knows? At least, uh, at least America and Iran don't seem to be going to war with with each other anytime soon, which is nice, I suppose. I feel like the UN is just gonna get so full of the Syrian conflict that, like, they're just gonna like kick everybody in from the UN. Like, all right, that's UN it. does like you nothing. guys go sit in the corner. Yeah, it's like. <laughs> That'd be hilarious, though. They just kick them from the UN. Unlikely. The the point of the yeah. UN, though, is you don't kick anyone out. Because when uh, when countries started leaving the League of Nations before the Second World War, they started becoming a lot more isolationist, and they they pretty much got overtaken by radical uh, governments. Can, can they yeah, even the kick US people from the, the UN? Uh, the United Nations, and they literally were the first one. Wait, this is a question. If, like, 100% of members want to kick one person, does that person get kicked? They they don't do it. They just don't do it. Like, is it's, it possible? It's not, the, the point it's of the UN is, is to include anymore. every nation on Earth. Yeah. Um, okay. Every state on Earth. But what but, happens when the nation gets yeah. to take over? When what, sorry? Like, what happens when one nation, like, stops existing? Oh, that's a very difficult question. Yeah, well, that doesn't really happen very much anymore. It, it it's does. more, uh, countries sort of start existing. Since the end of the Second World War, there's been, like, yeah. I don't know, something like anyway. 60, 60 new countries. Especially after the collapse of the USSR. Yeah, that well, too. Yeah, and, and that, and that is, it just came uh, like the USSR just stopped being a member, and it was Russia that took the spot as the yeah. on the UN Security Council, and then those other nations just popped into existence. It's not quite literally that, but yeah. that's a you know, explain it like I'm five. Russia's kind of like the successes. It kind of. Did you know that the Taiwan was the like official China in the UN until like the late fifties? Yes. Yeah. That's like pretty weird. Yeah. Yeah. They like flipped over. Yeah. It's kind of funny because didn't the UN? Because didn't the US? You know the Chinese Civil War. Taiwan to communist China. Didn't the US veto that? So yeah, you're gonna have to go read your history books that <laughs> yeah no, that's uh that's not a question we're gonna really cover here nobody can know that off the yeah top of I, I don't even no okay do so you, um do you think government not not hurts economy what was that question do you think government owned enterprise hurts economies 
government enterprising hurting economies? No, absolutely not. Uh, yes, yeah, my country, I think we should talk to Gatekeeper EU. He's got a really good question up a couple of, uh, a couple of bits up about mental health in South Korea. Oh man, I do not know nothing about mental health. I am not a psychologist, so um, that is. You never. <laughs> yeah, I mean, <laughs> what am I going to say about that? That's going to have any kind of uh, a weight or merit or value. I typed Australian man. That's the pick I found. Uh, okay, um, someone had a question. Um, who would be my favorite economist? Um, well, I don't know. It's like I don't know if there's anyone that sort of exists in, in sort of isolation. That's like, oh my goodness, I, I I'll hang a picture of you above my my window. Uh, sorry, above my bed to, to look at when I go to sleep at night. But uh, I think obviously, sort of like historical economists. Ugh, Probably Adam, like Adam Milton Smith. Friedman. Adam Smith is is obviously pretty hard to go past. You know, kind of the the, the granddaddy of uh, you know, sort of understanding an idea beyond um, sort of you know zero sum economies. Uh, so that's pretty cool, I suppose. Uh, you know, look, I mean, I, I did sort of come up with sort of a very Keynesian understanding of economics, and that's kind of the the, the predominant school of thought uh, here in Australia. But I think. Um, I don't necessarily actually agree with him, um, and it's one of uh, it's one of the few sort of major economists that I've actually had the sort of honour of, of uh, meeting and, and, and talking with in, in in real life is Thomas Piketty. Now he's uh, you know between uh, you know probably for, for a lot of you guys here probably a bit of a, a commie bastard. Uh, he's French, uh, so you know um, you know take that for what it, it's worth. Um, but uh, he has, That's enough. Like, he has had some, some really, really interesting ideas in addressing um, sort of what level of inequality is good for a society because um, he, he sort of has looked at the idea that, you know, uh, no inequality is bad for a society and too much inequality is also bad for a society. Let's have a look at what makes, what level of inequality is good and what kind of shapes that curve and what kind of factors sort of go into it. And, uh, you know, his work is, is very much sort of first-hand. It's not like, he doesn't really use these assumptions. He goes out and actually looks at sort of raw data. He'll do a lot of very, very large surveys. And, uh, you know, he's, he's very sort of, um, you know, well-funded and well-respected. So he kind of has the resources to do so. Um, but it's, it's still sort of very interesting, the sort of, uh, things he can take away from that because he's not sort of relying on these assumptions much, much as he's sort of actually relying on first-hand data, uh, to kind of look at, you know, what leads to overall prosperity, which is, uh, an interesting read, if nothing else. So, yeah, look, uh, I mean, could you please you, repeat his name? <laughs> Thomas Piketty. If you were, um, looking for, oh, someone was actually asking about a book. So he doesn't really write articles so much as he writes books. Uh, he is a professor, um, so I believe he does have sort of published articles, and obviously he probably would have had to do a dissertation, but he, he's really famous for capital in the 21st century, um, which, you know, you, you can agree with, you can not agree with, but um, the points that he makes are quite uh, interesting. Thanks. Interesting. And then, of course, there's me. I'm best, <clears throat> but, you know. um, I don't know if you already talked about this, but... What's your kind of, what's your opinion about the the stock market in the U.S.? 
that has <laughs> dropped to a. Uh, I don't remember exactly what how was it. I think it's, I just it remember about, that because of it coronavirus. Lost about, it lost about twelve percent of its value this week. So, um, uh, yeah, my, yeah, my, that, opi- yeah. my opinion on it is um, ouch. That hurt my um, my stock portfolio. But I'm sort of a very 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 <laughs> long time horizon investor, so it's not like anything that I'm overly worried about. Um, the uh, my actual sort of opinion on it is it's probably one of those things where it's kind of a combination of two um, two factors. Uh, I, I kind of see, obviously, coronavirus is what people are, are realistically blaming here. It's like, oh, well, you know, if, if it's doom and gloom, we're going to have Armageddon and supply chains are going to be closed for, for eternity and, you know, our, our economy is going to grind. Yeah, it's going to grind to a halt. Um, and, hey, yeah, maybe that's um, maybe that's fair enough. Uh, maybe, it, maybe it very well will. But I think what it's realistically done is kind of given people a little bit of a jump scare and going, oh, okay, well, let's kind of consider how fragile these very, very leveraged um, companies are that we're investing in. Because a lot of companies are on, uh, you know, especially these high growth companies uh, have got a lot of debt, you know, a lot of debt. Uh, and where it's taking making these sort of things like, hey, you know, potentially sort of, uh, you know, having a supply chain hiccup go from an issue that's not too serious to oh, really seriously you know we might not be able to pay our debtors if we can't get sort of our supply chains up and running within sort of two or three months um so uh, that is um you know i think what's realistically happened here so i think this is probably going to be a corporate debt problem rather than a, a coronavirus problem but the coronavirus is kind of just the, the little pin that's kind of come up and popped the balloon um but uh <laughs> I think realistic. Oh my goodness gracious me! Oh, geez, stop gambling, guys. Um, so uh, I think realistically, it's gonna recover. Um, you know, as as it probably does. How far it will fall? Who knows? You know, realistically, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if we saw a sort of a forty percent um, dive from. <coughs> Oh, bless me. Um, bless you. Thank you. Bless you. I, I wouldn't be surprised if we saw a forty percent drop from this. And and look how it sort of in, impacts me and my personal investment strategy. You know, and that's that's really I can all I can sort of talk about with confidence is uh, every month I just sort of buy my um, you know X amount of dollars worth of shares, and, mm. and that's pretty much it. We, I may um, maybe potentially up that uh, X amount for the few months, and I know that's kind of timing the market, which is really really bad. Um, but, uh, hey, you know, um, call it what it is. got to roll the dice a little bit. I'm not, I'm not Wall Street bets kind of crazy, though. There's a really good infographic, actually, for people that are sort of at all interested in sort of personal finance and investing and things like that on any kind of scale, uh, and that's dollar cost averaging, and it kind of compares three people. One person who is the unluckiest person uh, in the world, one person who is the luckiest investor in the world and one investor who's just the most boring investor in the world. Now, the unluckiest person in the world invests their money at the very height of the market, just before every sort of major recession that they've hmm. had. So they would invest it, you know, uh, September 2007, uh, and they would invest it sort of in, uh, you know, early February of, of uh, 2020 now and, and all of that kind of stuff. And they just get really, really unlucky. They say, look, if they, I think it was something like uh, they invested the equivalent of $200 a month, but obviously focused it in these sort of times. Uh, after 40 years, they'd have something like $900,000. Uh, 
uh, oh, sorry, $600,000. And yeah, the numbers could be wrong. And then they looked at someone who would be the luckiest investor. So someone who um, invests at the very bottom of the market all the time, just at the, the, the absolute bottom and concentrates it. And, you know, they would have sort of about $900,000. And then they looked at someone that just invested $200 every month, no matter what, no matter where the market was. And somehow they would have $1.2 million. Uh, and that sort of doesn't make sense to a lot of people. People think, oh, well, if I always buy at the bottom of the market, I'm going to be sort of richer and doing better than, than everyone else that sort of participates in the market. And that's kind of a common assumption. I mean, if anyone sort of disagrees vehemently with that, I mean, let it be known. But it makes sense, doesn't it? Uh-huh. Yeah. But the actual yeah. thing is... Um, what that sort of fails to see is that let's say you invested all of that kind of concentration of wealth back in, you know, uh, the bottom of the financial crisis in 2008. Well, it's been a long time since a dip, which means, sure, you're accumulating that $200 every month in cash, but you've realistically sort of missed out on, um, you know, 12 years worth of good luck, uh, which means that you're much, much better off just sort of dollar cost averaging $200 every month, time in the market, beats out timing the market, uh, which is kind of the general consensus. And uh, it, it's provable over sort of even like a, you know, 40, 50 year period. I think up to a hundred year period, it's, it's quite remarkable. It was Everything that you hear, I'm sorry, go on. Yeah, sorry. it blew my mind when I sort of figured it out. I was like, sure. I, 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 always, I always thought, oh, of course, you know, you're going to beat out sort of unlucky investors. And, you know, hey, potentially if there's, you got, you know, some kind of um, genius that knows how to always perfectly time the market, you're not going to beat them. But, no, realistically not. I have a uh, yeah, everything that you just said is absolutely one hundred percent true. That's very interesting. Yeah. There's very little stuff that he says that isn't true. Oh, well, <laughs> that's, uh, that's true, but I can vouch reality. When it comes to finance, yeah, please do dollar cost average. How does the unlucky investor make any money though? If he's always if he's always investing at the height of the market. Well, look, if you he invest, loses. <laughs> if you if you. That's if the, if you invested at the height of the market back in 2007, let's say September 2007, um, the uh, S&P 500 was tracking at about $700, uh, 700 points. Um, obviously, you know, you invested that and, no oh, shit, I think it went down to like 500 points or, or something along those lines. Those numbers could be wrong. But now it's at 3,000. So, sure, it was a little bit shit for the first two years and you probably lost a, a fair bit of money, but you're still long-term kind of better off. Uh, and of course, you know, they're still putting money in. So even if they were losing money, they would still sort of accumulate money because, you know, unless you're losing $200 a month, then your $200 a month contribution still sort of adds up over time. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it's pretty hard to uh, sort of be that unlucky. But even still, it's good to know that sort of even the world's unluckiest investor could, uh, you know, realistically sort of, um, you know, come out ahead. Yeah, and one thing I, I want to add is a lot of people assume that when you're when you buy stuff in the market, that if it goes the price goes down, that you suddenly lost that money. No, that's not wow. how it works because you've purchased uh, an asset, you purchased a bond or a stock, and that uh, asset can appreciate in value, uh, and also it could pay dividends or coupons or any form of other types of cash flows, and all of that can add up to the to basically pay off what you paid originally and that's how you can make money uh with this because you're ultimately buying into the future profits of something a lot of people don't understand what investing is they think it's just numbers on a graph and it moves up or down they don't know why it moves up or down but <laughs> but it kind of does 
Yeah, and the reason the reason why things move down. up and down is because of what, there's some logic behind it. There is always logic behind it. Yeah, but uh, they're not lying when they say that it moves up and down. Yeah, they're yeah. But hmm. the the one thing is a lot of people That's get super wrong. scared. Like they invest and then the stock goes down. The stock goes well, down. They lose down. like ten percent of that, so they're at ninety percent. And they're like, Oh, I've just lost ten percent and so they withdraw their money. And that's the worst thing you could do is just withdraw your money. Unless you absolutely well, can create, unless you can absolutely find something that is a better use of your money, like. You know, but if you if if I mean it, it does depend though. Like if the company is falling apart as the days go on. Yeah, but it's probably better so to cut. Your butt. In this, I love using this example. In 1931, their uh, GE was uh, a billion dollar company. It was one of the first billion dollar companies, um, and. In the span of six months, GE lost half of its value. Um, and uh, the uh, Benjamin Graham, who wrote uh, The Intelligent Investor, and he also wrote Security Analysis, uh, he points out that GE's actual like revenue and how they were doing hadn't changed during those six months. In fact, they had grown. What had changed was the market's uh, per or perception of the overall economy. And so investors sold off GE shares because they were so unsure about what would happen in the future, whereas GE kept marching on. And so GE's performance continued to do well. Um, and everybody who had sold off basically was, was you know, selling off things because they were scared. And it wasn't because of actual, like GE wasn't actually going down. Uh, so but people don't look now. at fundamentals. Uh, so, so the question is, what did, did GE literally cut half of its uh, of of its um, value because it lost half of its services or it lost half of its employees to do any of that stuff? No. GE effectively did not change. Day-to-day -day operations did not change. What changed was the market's perception. And that's that's the disconnect between the valuation well, and, and the actual company, the underlying the company. The thing is that the problems that people, yeah, so if when they really get positive companies, we're doing great to lose all the value. Apparently, but like you were saying, people they get scared really easy when it comes to investing. Yes, they do. But then the problem is that once they're scared, they start withdrawing in mass, and then that actually causes problems when everybody is suddenly withdrawing. It's not because the a comp grand like stock down doesn't stop because a single company is like having problems usually at least it starts it's because of a snowball effect of people getting scared losing their face and withdrawing everything yes there's... it's also too that it's also too that a lot of the a lot of trading is done by computer so i, I would not a lot of it's super high frequency Stuff. Don't don't point to the computers as saying ah the SS computers are the reason why it's ultimately no I, I know I know I know but I, it's I I mean like for, for day trading a lot of it's super like it's down to the millisecond in terms of trades in t yeah. and uh, but that doesn't that that is not what we're ultimately that does not drive the value of the company and because if if it's the case where all the computers are selling off stuff. Well, somebody's going to have a program that looks at the actual fundamentals and says, "Hey, wait a second, this company's actually, you know, uh, right now because the because the price has moved, the stock price has moved so far down. This company is now overvalued. The comp you could buy up that you could buy up stock in that company, and 
uh, within the next couple of months, you could see it see it return back to where it was before it started dropping. Or even, or even in the next couple of minutes. In even the next couple of minutes, sure. It, it, but yeah. the whole point is you look at that and say, wait a second, this does not match reality. And that's when you start buying. Once you, yeah. you start yeah. buying, when you I look at the... Buff, that's a warm about the day with his book. Dog yes, well, you just got to be careful though of companies like if if they're that dodgy, they'll they'll try and hide their losses. No, so so I don't. But but companies don't release that kind of information with with. So there's there's certain types of events. So for instance, these recent events are driven mainly by the reporting of coronavirus. They haven't. We haven't actually seen the results of the company's performance for these quarters yet. Because we're in the middle of the quarter, so we can't. Uh, and and companies, you know, they aren't. Yeah, yeah. A bunch. There's some that are super scummy and they use accounting policies that are super whack. But like, at the end of the day, you know, you can't hide. You can't hide losses. You yeah, can't because yeah. ultimately that means that you are uh, you are basically uh, bringing cash up from out of nowhere. Like you can't create cash. No one can create I mean, cash. The company. Like at the end of the day, has to you know pay its bills, yeah. right? Well, I think I think eventually the scummiest company will always be caught out. Eventually, exactly. The scummiest company will always be caught out. Venezuela. Don't limit your investments to one company either. Yeah, don't don't invest into one company either. Have a diversified portfolio. That, but the yeah. problem, all your money in space, calls. A big problem <laughs> with investing is that like when since companies try to like hide their losses. It creates like kind of uncertainty around companies, yes. and because of that uncertainty, a lot of investors. Here's the thing: a lot of people that are investing, but they don't know a lot about investing. They think that they that they have a way smaller chance to make money than they actually have, which is yes. why their faith, like a small little thing, like discovering that a company was lying about a slight number, is or is enough to like create a. If the snowball effect goes right enough, it's enough to create a massive economic recession. Although, although the thing is, people who who you know they're not very good investors. They usually wouldn't invest billions of dollars into into the market. Usually, the people in I mean, not I mean, I'm sure there's examples, but um, usually the people who are actually doing the huge high stakes uh, investing, are people who actually know what they're doing. I mean, you'd hope. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> we hope. Yeah, no, being on and seeing. I, don't I know, really hope so. I don't know you can, <laughs> if you can attest to this, but you've seen. Uh, I've seen people who I'm just like, I would not trust you with my money. I would never fucking trust you with my money. You take. Oh, for like, sure, dude. They are. They are just. Uh, you know, people who at the end of the day uh, are just basically collecting people's money and managing it, taking a service oh. fee, and then and then taking those investments and plowing them into risky ventures and then yeah. basically like you know, downplaying, basically downplaying one, how, one how risky they are. Ponzi scheme. Well, Martin Scully did that. But yeah, he has like this entire thing of value investing and how so the market's going. So just don't bring up Scully. Uh, anyway, uh, but it's uh, like at, at that moment, what they what you're doing is essentially you're gambling. You're not gambling with other people's money, but you're – so you are taking people's money and you're putting oh. it to – um what okay guys yeah, red chicken has yeah. spoken i need to go oh. to sleep but first i need to talk to oh, him so okay. i am going to leave now thank you for the 
chat as always and thank you for the wise investment advice read the millionaire next door guys it's super mm. super good uh if they're going to take away anything from that so hopefully you can all be uh sort of rich little viewers uh which is which would be great uh but other than that i will see you all on thursday see you dude have okay. fun okay thanks hey, see you greetings how you doing chicken oh hello Uh, you are silent. <laughs>